In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said that in the latter times, some, he said, will fall away from the faith. That is to say, there are some people, Paul said, who demonstrate an attraction to Christianity. And they even claim to believe in Jesus Christ, who will at some point depart from the faith that they once claimed to embrace. Now, this doesn't mean that they had genuine faith, true salvation faith in a relationship with Christ, and then rejected him and lost their salvation. It just means that at one time, though they professed to believe in Christ, in time it became obvious that it was a false profession, that they never really had a relationship with him to begin with. And how did it become so obvious? Well, they fell away, Paul said, from the faith. That is, they departed from the gospel. They no longer claimed to believe the foundational truths about salvation. They no longer claimed to be following Christ. They no longer claimed that he was the only way of salvation. These are the kinds of people the Apostle John wrote about when he said in 1 John 2:18 and 19, He said, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. He said they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, that is to say, if they were true Christians, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. John is describing what we've been calling from our study in Jude an apostate or apostates. Individuals who have fallen away or departed from the truth. That's what apostasy means. These are the kinds of people that we've been studying about in Jude. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to that little book of Jude just before the book of Revelation. Those who had left the faith and yet the problem was that these folks were remaining in the church. And that's why Jude is writing this letter. They didn't depart from the church. They stayed in the church. And so he writes them for this very reason that they had infiltrated these churches or the single church of his day. And they were attacking and they were distorting biblical Christianity. Notice verse four again. We keep coming back to three and four because they're so critical for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. He said they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That is a license to sin and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the primary appeal in this letter is found in the verse just before this, where he says in verse three, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down or delivered to the saints. So Jude is telling them, contend for the faith, stand up to these men because they have infiltrated your churches. But Jude doesn't simply tell us to contend for the faith. He wants us to understand how dangerous and how wicked those who deny and distort Christianity really are. In other words, he wants us to understand what we're getting ourselves into as we contend or battle 
for the faith. It's not an easy battle because these men that we contend with are so evil and so rebellious. And so Jude fills most of this brief letter, and it really is brief, just 25 verses. He fills most of this letter with information about these men. Describes what apostates are. And so, so far in the first 10 verses, which we have covered, Jude has told us a number of important truths about apostates. He's told us in verse 3, they are ungodly. He'll repeat this later. They are ungodly. He told us in verse 3 that they turn the grace of God into a license to sin, somehow making it sound like sin is okay because God will forgive and he's a loving God. They deny, according to verse 3, the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master. They also, he's told us, they face certain judgment. It's absolutely certain. And he bases that by going back into the Old Testament and telling us that there were three groups of apostates who were severely judged by God in ancient times. He mentions in verse 5 the Israelites who wandered in the desert. Why? Because of their unbelief. A whole generation was wiped out. They were apostate. They knew the truth. They chose not to believe the truth. He mentions in verse 6 another group of apostates, the angels, the fallen angels, those we call demons today, who joined Lucifer or Satan in rebelling against God. They certainly knew the truth. They chose to rebel against God, verse 6. Then he mentions in verse 7 the sexually perverted men of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, which God destroyed. So Jude has told us about these three groups of apostates. He's also told us, as we saw last week, that apostates are generally marked by three specific characteristics. They tend to be sexually immoral. He said this in verse 8, but in the same way, these men also by dreaming, meaning they they live in their own dream world of, of unreality, they defile The flesh, meaning that in some way they are immoral, sexually immoral. Secondly, he said, apostates reject authority over them. Verse 8 goes on to say, very simply, and reject authority. They reject any authority over them. Number three, he says, they insult angels. He says in verse 8, and they revile angelic majesties. He probably, as we pointed out last week, is mentioning this, probably these apostates in his day reviled and insulted and blasphemed angels because angels, we're told, were involved in some way, which we don't understand because it has not been revealed to us, in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai from God to Moses. And so since apostates despise his laws because the law reflects God's holy character and and standards of righteousness, they despise angels. That's probably what he's talking about. Now, tonight, as we proceed in our study of Jude, we're going to look at just one verse, one verse, but it's packed with a lot of information. And this one verse gives us more insight into the errors and the ways of wickedness that apostates demonstrate. It's verse 11. Jude says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now notice that Jude starts off this verse 
by pronouncing an emotional outburst against apostates. He says, woe to them. Now, we don't hear much woes in the New Testament. You do on occasion. But but Jude sounds at this point very much like an Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophets often use the word woe in condemning certain individuals or even nations. It's very common in the Old Testament to hear a prophet say woe. We also have have this noted in the New Testament that Jesus used this word woe when he placed a curse on Chorazan and Bethsaida, two cities near the Sea of Galilee. He said woe to you and he did that because they rejected him. And if you go there these days, I've been in both those places, they are barren, just barren places. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees by a series of woes. Now, the thought behind this word woe that Jude is using is simply that of judgment. It is a word that conveys the pain and the distress of those who will experience God's wrath and judgment and condemnation. And that's what Jude is saying about these apostates. Pain and distress await them because God will eventually judge them. And why will he judge them? Well, he will judge them because of all of their sins that they have committed. But in this one verse, in verse 11, Jude highlights three specific sins of apostates that warrant God's judgment. If they did nothing else... This would warrant his judgment. And the way Jude does this is by citing not three groups of apostates. He's already done this. Jude often conveys things in in threes. But now he cites three Old Testament individuals who were apostates. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And the reason he cites these men is because all contemporary apostates follow the ways of these three Men. In other words, the errors of the apostates of Jude's day and the errors of the apostates of every generation, including ours, are just like the errors of these three ancient apostates. So tonight we want to look at, at three errors that condemn all apostates. The first error that condemns apostates is that they reject God's way of salvation. Understand this. They're not into minor error. They reject the gospel. They reject the way of salvation. Jude says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. The first Old Testament apostate that Jude mentions is the notorious Cain, who was the first apostate in human history. He was the first son of Adam and Eve. And Jude says that apostates, all apostates, have gone the way of Cain. And this is why they are condemned by God. So what is the way of Cain? Well, Cain is mentioned in four books of the Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis. He's mentioned in Hebrews. He's mentioned here in Jude. He's also mentioned in 1 John, which speaks of him being a murderer. And for murder, he is the most well-known. He is perhaps, as I said, best known for the fact that Cain killed his brother Abel. But I doubt that that's Jude's point. I doubt that Jude is saying that all apostates are murderers because that's not the case, unless he's saying they murder the soul, and I think that's stretching it a little bit. But one way 
that all apostates resemble Cain across the board is that they all reject God's way of salvation. And that's the way of Cain that they follow. Let's let's go back in our Bibles to the beginning. Genesis chapter four. That's where we meet Cain. And that's where it's revealed what a wicked man he really was. In Genesis chapter four, beginning of verse one, we read this. Now, the man, that is Adam's talking about, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings, firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's? The answer is given to us in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. If you look now at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see why. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter. So it makes sense that we we learn that one obeyed by faith and the other did not. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Abel was a righteous man. And he evidenced that, the writer is saying, by his faith, which demonstrated itself in his sacrifice. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. Now, what we learn here is that Abel's offering was based on faith. Faith is always based on what God has revealed. Faith is not just, I feel like doing this, I think I'll do it. There's always revelation. So Abel's offering was based on what God had revealed. And what was that? That the only sacrifice that God wanted and accepted was an animal sacrifice. Even back at the beginning of human history, God revealed, I believe, first to Adam and Eve, in that he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals, meaning he had to kill them. Blood was shed. And I think he made it very clear to Cain and Abel that the only sacrifice that was acceptable to him, the only way to approach him, was through an animal sacrifice. All pictures of Christ. He made it clear that the forgiveness of sins would only come through the sacrificial shedding of blood. Otherwise, Abel's sacrifice would not have been based on faith. Faith always is based on what God has revealed. In other words, God had revealed to mankind right from the start that the way of salvation is through a blood atonement. I believe Adam and Eve knew that. I believe Cain and Abel knew that. And Abel, unlike Cain, believed God, and so he brought an animal sacrifice to God. But Cain didn't do that. Instead of bringing an animal sacrifice, he brought God a sacrifice from the fruit of the ground. In other words, the fruit of his own labors, representing his own deeds. And his offering was unacceptable to God and it was rejected by the Lord because it was not based upon the revelation that God had made. And it was not based 
on faith in what God had said. And what did Cain do? Well, Genesis goes on to say that he became very angry. He allowed sin to master him, control him, and eventually he murdered his brother. Cain became the first apostate in human history because he rejected what God had revealed about the way of salvation. And from this point on, we need to understand that all apostates, everyone follows the way of Cain by rejecting that salvation is by grace through faith alone and faith in the finished blood atonement work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So understand this. All apostates reject the blood atonement of Christ. Now, they may speak of Christ's death in in mushy, sentimental terms, such as, uh, well, so sacrificial and it was loving and, and so giving. But don't be duped by that. They all reject the truth that his death satisfied the justice of God and was necessary for our salvation. And that's why, folks, you will often hear liberal theologians speak of salvation in terms of universalism, meaning that everyone, everyone is going to heaven. That is a common view in liberal theology. Everyone, that's why it's called universalism. Everyone in the universe is going to heaven. And along with universalism comes their denial of the reality of hell. Because they won't accept the fact that God's holiness demands punishment for sin and that salvation through faith in Christ's death is necessary to be delivered from hell. In their theology and and their thinking, they can't believe in hell because then they'd have to believe in salvation from hell. One modern day apostate who embraces universalism, denies hell, rejects the way of salvation and follows the way of Cain is a man by the name of John Hick. I recently bought a book called Hell on Trial by Robert A. Peterson, who is a professor of systematic theology at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. And so far what I've read, it's an excellent book. And he mentions a modern day apostate. Let me just read this to you. This man, John Hick, who apparently is still alive. He says, John Hick is a world famous British philosopher of religion. He recounts his spiritual pilgrimage in the introduction to his book, God Has Many Names. He tells how as a young man studying law in Great Britain at the University College, Hull, he experienced a religious conversion to evangelical Christianity. Now, I'm going to quote what John Hick has written. Here's what John Hick says. I underwent a spiritual conversion in which the whole world of Christian belief and experience came vividly to life. And I became a Christian of a strongly evangelical and indeed fundamentalist kind. I entered with great joy into the world of Christian faith. At this stage, I accepted as a whole and without question the entire evangelical package of theology, the verbal inspiration of the Bible, creation and fall, Jesus as God, the Son incarnate, born of a virgin, conscious of his divine nature and performing miracles of divine power, redemption by his blood from sin and guilt, his bodily resurrection and ascension and future return in glory, heaven and hell. Now, the author, that's the end of his quote, the author now explains, Today, however, John Hick rejects evangelical theology he once accepted and shows particular contempt for the traditional doctrine 
of hell. Indeed, he labels the notion that God inflicts sinners with unending torment a grim fantasy and a serious perversion of the Christian gospel. Furthermore, he finds eternal punishment morally revolting because it attributes to God a vindictiveness and insatiable cruelty. Now, he goes on to state that Hick does not sidestep the implications of his pluralism and so forth and, and his rejection. But listen to this. He says, Hick candidly admits, if Jesus was literally God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, living a human life so that the Christian religion was founded by God on earth in person, it is then very hard to escape from the traditional view that all mankind must be converted to the Christian faith. I mean, he's got that right. He said, if that's the case, but he doesn't reject, he doesn't accept that anymore. Hick, however, rejects the Orthodox Christian faith and concludes, and they quote, the notion that Jesus proclaimed himself as God incarnate and as the sole point of saving contact between God and man is, he says, and I quote, without adequate historical foundation and represents a doctrine developed by the church. Put bluntly, I'm still quoting him, that Jesus was God, the Son incarnate is not, he says, literally true. Folks, that's a modern day apostate. He has to if he rejects Christ, he rejects the way of salvation, and he rejects the doctrine of hell. He has gone, as all apostates have, the way of Cain. So I wanted to read to you from this book that you know this is not an ancient problem. It's not limited to an ancient world. It's a problem that we face, and we have to still contend for the faith, because guys like that are out there. So he, like all apostates, follows the way of Cain and rejecting the way of salvation. So why does Jude pronounce a woe and a judgment upon apostates? First of all, because they reject the way of salvation. And when we say reject, it means they know the way. An apostate knows the way, he chooses to reject it. He's not ignorant. He knows the truth, he rejects it. The second error that condemns apostates is that they are greedy for money. They are greedy for money. They will exploit people. Jude goes on to say in verse 11, he says, And for pay, this is why woe unto them, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. Now, what, what is the error of Balaam? In fact, who is Balaam? Who is Balaam and what was his error? I'd like you to open your Bibles to look back at Second Peter. Second Peter mentions Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. And then let's think about this rather interesting character. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, Forsaking the right way, once again talking about apostates, but also here false teachers. And I think, I think that Jude is talking about those who are false teachers too. They have gone astray having followed... The way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, who is this man? His story appears in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, chapters 23 through 25, where he, where he is presented to us as an unusual character. There we are told 
that there was a Moabite king by the name of Balak, not to be confused with Balaam, his name is similar, but Balak, who was afraid that Israel was going to attack and destroy his people. Israel had recently come out of Egypt, and this man, now Balak, the king, Moabite king, is afraid that Israel is going to come, attack his people, destroy them. So this king, knowing that he cannot defeat Israel militarily, decides to try to defeat him another way. Let's turn back to Numbers Way back in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22. And I want to read to you verses 5, 22, verses 5 and 6. So he sent, this is the king, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Moab, by the way, is where the modern-day nation of Jordan is. Now, therefore, please come. Notice this. This is his request. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So here's the deal. He wanted Balaam to come and curse the Israelites so that they would be defeated. Now, Balaam is an unusual character. He is an ancient pagan, not Jewish, but pagan soothsayer, a Gentile who had some knowledge of the true God. And he was noted to be able to do supernatural works. Now, the story in Numbers 22, we don't need to read every verse, but let me just paraphrase it for you. The story in Numbers 22 goes on to say that God told Balaam, you are forbidden to curse Israel because I have blessed them. But when Balaam relayed this to the king of Moab, the king would not take no for an answer. So he offered Balaam a huge sum of money to curse Israel. In other words, he tried to hire him as a prophet. Wants to make him a prophet to make profit. Anyway, he tried to, to hire him. And though Balaam's initial response, as you read these chapters, appears to be very noble because he at first turns down the money, the rest of the story reveals that Balaam deeply longed for monetary reward. And the only reason he didn't take it at first is because he was afraid of God. He was afraid of what God might do. So that's what we are talking about. And the proof that Balaam was greedy for money is that eventually he did come up with a way to try to destroy Israel. According to Numbers 31, verse 16, he counseled the women of Moab to seduce, sexually seduce the men of Israel and then... Get them to worship their pagan gods. In Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, we read this. And this, apparently, you go, you look ahead and you look back and you compare this. And this was his counsel. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. This was his counsel. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor 
And the Lord was angry against Israel. In fact, he was so angry against Israel that he destroyed many of them. The Moabites also many were destroyed and Balaam was destroyed in God's judgment as well. Now, that's the unusual story of Balaam. But the point that Jude is making is that all apostates are like Balaam in the sense that they love money. They're greedy. And those apostates who are involved in some type of teaching ministry, and many are, only do this, not because they care about people, they do this to make money. In other words, apostates are greedy. They are greedy materialists. Peter really brings this out. Let's go back again to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. And you'll see even more about what Peter has to say concerning these people. He says in 2 Peter 2, verse 14, notice the end of verse 14. He says, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. When he says accursed children, it's, it's like Jude's woe. They are cursed by God. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Now, what he means, notice, notice what he says. They're not just greedy, but they have a heart that's trained in greediness. The specific Greek word that Peter uses here for trained gives us our English word gymnasium. Gymnasium. They have a heart that's exercised in greed. They work at it like an athlete works at, at training. This is a graphic picture of a false teacher who, like a, like a dedicated athlete, exercises his muscles They exercise their hearts in greediness. Phillips translates this. It's a a good way of translating this. He says their technique of getting what they want is through long practice, highly developed. Folks, what he means by this is that they work at this. They work out in practicing and sharpening their greedy skills and they come after your money. They come after your money. should understand that false teachers are motivated by a desire only to make money. And they have developed incredible skills at getting you to give your money. They are experts at getting money. People's hard-earned money by such techniques as using dramatic and emotional appeals, heart-wrenching stories, often with, with pictures of sweet-looking children, Years ago, Oral Roberts said, if I don't raise a certain amount of money for this ministry, I'm going to die. And I thought, good, you ought to, for saying something as blasphemous as that. He said something like, God told me I was going to die. Or you don't want to be responsible for this ministry closing down, do you? All all of that kind of stuff. This This is really what's behind the prosperity gospel. These men ask you to give them money so that they can preach the gospel, but they don't preach the gospel. They never have and they never will. They just preach about you being wealthy and healthy. And the only reason they want you to be healthy is because they want you to stay alive to give them your money. That's the only reason they want you to be healthy. They don't care about you. They cared about you. They tell you the truth of Scripture. And many, many false teachers and apostates have become incredibly wealthy. Sometimes it's very hard to get financial disclosures of some of these guys, but others, by their own admission, reveal that they are taking in a great deal of money. For example, one television evangelist justified 
greediness by relating the story about a pastor who apparently was challenged by some of the people in his church for the amount of money that he was making. Apparently he was making a lot and some people came to him and challenged him on this. Well, the evangelist said the pastor then told his challengers, go back and read what the Bible says the tithe is intended to do. Well, these folks spent the next two weeks studying the subject. And when they came back to the pastor, they said, Pastor, the tithe belongs to you and the ministers of this church. Offering should take care of everything else. This guy was elated. This televangelist said that the pastor came to him with tears in his eyes and revealed that his salary based on the tithe belonging to him would be over a million dollars a year. Now, think about that. A million dollars a year for a pastor's salary. I mean, does this guy think he's a baseball player? You know, that is a lot of money. No wonder I, I thought about this. I thought, no wonder this pastor had tears in his eyes. These were tears of happiness. He's thrilled because he got what his heart trained in greed, longed for, and that was money. That was money. That's what Jude is saying back in in his letter. And that's the point that he's making, that all apostates are like Balaam. They are greedy. They rush headlong into their work because they want to make money. They love money. And... That's why Jude pronounces a woe upon them. They are condemned. Why? They reject the way of salvation and they are greedy for money. And in their greed, they will exploit you and they will take advantage of you. A horrible thing. The third error that condemns apostates is that they rebel against God-given leadership. God-given leadership. The last phrase of verse 11 Jude says, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah, of Korah. Jude mentions another infamous Old Testament character by the name of Korah. His his story is also found in Numbers. So let's turn there. Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers 16, we read that that this man, Korah, who is a Levite, he resented the leadership of Moses and Aaron. We read this in chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So you understand he's saying that this man Korah rose up with a few others and they had 250 Jewish leaders with them, renowned men in the congregation, 250. And and look, he, he leads a rebellion. Verse three, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They're saying, in essence, is who made you boss? We're all holy. We all can take care of ourselves. We don't need you to lead us. That's, in essence, what they're saying. So in these verses, we read that this man Korah led a revolt of 250 leaders 
in Israel against Moses and Aaron. And he questioned why they should be leaders. After all, we all have the Lord. He's in our midst. Why you? And God, in response, dramatically judged Korah and these rebels how he had the ground actually open up and swallow this man and some of his leaders around him alive. You can read that in Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 through 35. The ground just opened up. The rest of the 250 men were consumed with fire that came down and burned them alive. I mean, that is a dramatic, dramatic judgment. Now, Jude, years later, tells us that apostates are just like Korah. In that, they also resent the leadership that God has appointed over them. They are always rebellious to to leadership. And what he apparently means by this is that the apostates of his day rejected the leadership of Christ's apostles. They said, we're not going to listen to what the apostles say. We don't care about their authority. And they apparently would not listen to the local pastors, the elders in their local churches. This may very well be what the Apostle Paul was referring to, this attitude, when he tells Titus in, in Titus 3, 10 and 11, reject a factious man, that is a divisive man, after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man, Paul says, is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He means put him out of the church, reject him. He's not going to be a part of your fellowship. Reject those who are divisive in the church by trying to assert themselves as leaders. That's apparently what Paul was talking about. It may have even been broader than that. Asserting themselves as leaders in rebellion to the leadership and the teaching of the elders in the church. Understand this. Apostates reject the clear teaching of Scripture. And so they will always have a problem with pastors who teach the Bible. They will rebel against them. Why? Because they are, in reality, rebelling against the Word of God, since apostates always demand to be their own authority, their own authority in their lives and the lives of those who follow them. They are in charge. So, folks, understand that when Jude says in this verse, woe unto them, it's because they deserve it. They deserve it. These men are not simply confused and a little off base. They willfully reject What God has to say about salvation. They engage in error for the sake of exploiting people by making money off of them. They've known the truth. They reject the truth and they want to make money off of you by teaching their lies. And they reject all divinely ordained leadership over them because they reject God's leadership in their lives. Which brings us back to what Jude says in verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So make sure that you are not one who could fall into apostasy. How do you make sure? Make sure that you have really trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. This this man that I read about had some type of a profession. Paul said men men are going to fall away. John said they went out from amongst us because they were not part of us at all. So make sure you've really trusted Christ as the only way of salvation and that instead of money you live for his glory and that you are in complete submission to the leadership of your church because God has appointed them over you. You do that and you evidence that you really know Christ. This is important that we understand what apostates are like so we'll be armed in our battle 
against them. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, indeed, we do pray that you will help us to be those who are not naive, but those who understand, Lord, what we're really up against. We are up against men and women who know the truth. Lord, some some know the Bible better than we do, but they're rejected. They've never embraced the truth. They've never been converted. Their lives have never really evidenced true salvation, and they reject your way. Lord, they reject not only the truth of of salvation, but they live for money, not your glory. And they are rebellious to authority. Lord, may we be those who are discerning and spotting apostates. May we be those who are careful who we give our money to. Not taken in by smiles, not taken in by uh, kind sounding words. May we be discerning. And I pray, Lord, that if the mark of an apostate is that they reject salvation, may we ever so more proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Lord, as they reject your glory and do what they do for money, may we be careful with our money. May we not do things for any kind of gain, but only to give and to serve. And Lord, as apostates rebel against authority over them, may we affirm our confidence in you that you've put authority over us for our own good. And so, Lord, we, we want to affirm these things. We want to um, embrace them. We want to live by them, internalize them. And so we pray that you'll take what has been shared tonight, Lord, fill our hearts and minds with these truths and, and arm us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to your people. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.